Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. Many of the most popular guests we've hosted on the show over the past two plus years have been leaders in the product design space. Folks like Mike Davidson, Julie Zhu, Daniel Burka, Golden Krishna, and so many more folks we look up to in that field. Each has been refreshingly candid about the lessons they've learned, building their design teams, and scaling the way those teams work. So this week, we're excited to bring on our own director of product design, Emmett Connolly, and reflect that spotlight into some of Intercom's own lessons in this space. Emmett joined Intercom in October 2014 after more than eight years over at Google. He was a leading mind behind several of their products that you're probably using today, including Google Flights and inventing a little project in his 20% time that you know as Android Wear. Today, he manages a team of 12 Intercom designers who are actually embedded in each of our product teams. Posting this chat is Intercom's own managing editor, John Collins, who got to pick him its brain about how he iterated on his team's processes as they've scaled headcount. As a designer, you almost you have this disease where you see everything as a design challenge on some level. But as a designer, I fairly quickly actually realized that this is just another design challenge. But instead of designing the product, you're designing the team or you're the machine that builds the machine. The design system Emmett's put in place to keep everyone's work and the user experience consistent. The real core of the thing is to have the whole team having the same kind of conceptual model of what the product is. And why, when creating your own design system, you need to account for your product's specific needs. A mistake that, frankly, I've witnessed is maybe some companies who are saying, let's do our pattern library or our design system. And for some reason, they generally stay at this generic level rather than baking some product concepts into the system itself. If you like what you hear or want to check out more Inside Intercom episodes, you can subscribe to our show over at iTunes or your favorite podcast app. But now, let's hop in the studio with John Collins and Emma Connolly. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. So, Emma, welcome to the show. To get us started, maybe you could give us a flavor for what you were doing before Intercom. How did you come to be here? Uh, before Intercom, I was a designer at Google uh, for the, in retrospect, shockingly long <laughs> amount of time of, of eight years or a little bit over eight years. I worked in a variety of offices and, and, and projects in my time there. I moved from Dublin to Zurich to Mountain View near San Francisco. I worked on search. I One of my big projects there was designing flight search and I availed of Google's opportunity to spend 20% of your time doing some form of side project also. Uh, in fact, I availed of it many, many times, and each time I failed. But in the end, something got off the ground. Myself and a couple of friends started working on designing a smartwatch. We kicked off a project to do that, and that turned into Android Wear, which is Google's smartwatch platform that launched well, four years ago or something <laughs> like that now. It's amazing that smartwatches can start to feel like ancient history, but <laughs> that's where we are. Cool. So whether, you know, maybe it was Android Wear or, or Google Flights, I mean, what were some of the, the, the big lessons that you got from those jobs that set you up for success maybe here at Intercom? Or, or are you one of those people who believes that you can never sort of apply a template from a previous experience to the next one? I mean, you can certainly take lessons, I think, to say that what worked as a product designer for me, you know, 10 years ago in, in a certain role at Google and, and and to take that as a template to being a design manager effectively at Intercom isn't really going to work. 
but certainly, uh, you know, I, I learned a lot from a lot of people and, and a lot about building product in those years. Some of the real takeaways for me were, well, first of all, I suppose you learn the craft of, of what it takes to actually iterate on a product over a long period of time. But I also learned about maybe what it takes. One of the things that Google actually is really good at, I think, still is taking a great technical breakthrough or or some big computer science development and pairing it really well with a UI innovation. So, for example, you might think about Gmail, which, you know, launched famously on April Fool's Day with, <laughs> I forget what it was, but like one gigabyte, which was just horrifically large amount of storage at the time. But that meant you never had to delete an email, which you always had to do with Hotmail and the likes beforehand. And so they didn't have to have a delete button. They had an archive button. And so search became possible and full threading of conversations became possible. So from some technological or computer science breakthrough, that becomes an enabler of some UI innovation. And I think Google traditionally has always been really good at that. And that's how they've taken their engineering centric culture and really managed to still turn out great products. And that's an interesting take on it because the simplistic view is, oh, it's an engineering led culture. And so it's a terrible place for anyone else to work. Right, right, right. I, I, I think, you know, it, it wasn't an easy place for what it's worth to be a designer 10 years ago. I will say that Google has also done a great job of, you know, reading the winds of, of how uh, great companies are evolving. And I think Apple deserves a lot of credit for changing the culture and the value of design in Silicon Valley companies and so on. But Google went through a, a quiet but quite incredible cultural pivot, which is maybe a lot harder than a product pivot to undertake, right? Where they started to move from a company where engineering was a, you know, the pinnacle and, and was the be all and end all, where design started to get given a lot more importance. And I think we wouldn't have things like material design or or Android being as, you know, modern feeling as it finally is today if it wasn't for that underlying cultural shift that had to happen in the company. So when you then came from uh, Google to here, I mean, uh, I'm sure that was quite a, a cultural shift, but also quite a, just in reality, like going from quite like a massive company with a lot of design resources to what I presume when you, when you joined was a very small product design team. How does that contrast with today? I mean, like presumably you've been through various like iterations of how you work or iterations of the teams and, and, and structures. For sure. I, there's some kind of natural wave that you always go through. You know, I, I did somewhat intentionally go from this very large company to a, a much smaller one. And before Google, I was at a small company. And I wanted <laughs> to try out a big company after that. And and what's interesting, of course, is Intercom has now grown quite a bit, obviously not to Google scale. But it's a very different thing to dramatically shift from a scale of tens of thousands of people to you know, what at the time I joined Intercom was maybe dozens of people, right? When you grow with the company, it's a bit more like watching your kids grow up. You don't notice them getting taller day by day, right? <laughs> and yet suddenly you turn around one day uh, a year later and you're like, holy shit, that happened. Uh, th- things are very different now. And and the danger, of course, with that, especially if you're responsible for evolving the team, is that you don't see soon enough the need to actually change things like your processes and mm. how you work and so on. And so that is something that you need to be aware of and look out for. Do you think that's something, yeah, you can just get better at? Because I know uh, certainly at Intercom, that bit me and, and my team in that, you know, suddenly you realize, actually, you only realize your processes are 
not fit for purpose just when they break and they break badly and then suddenly it's like retrofitting like is it possible to sort of like get ahead of that or is that just a natural way of things and the way it has to be do you think I think the breaking is natural and the first time it happens you're like oh my god I've completely failed you know because yeah. I put these processes in place and I thought they were great and they were working for a while but they must be rubbish because yeah. you know they, they haven't worked and in fact you've simply outgrown them and, and so you know when that penny drops and you realise oh this is an ongoing thing it's not about coming in and setting a culture or setting a set of processes and then and then just letting it run you need to be constantly on the lookout for opportunities to optimize and iterate like as a designer you almost you have this disease where you see everything as a design challenge on some level but as a designer I fairly quickly actually realized that this is just another design challenge but instead of designing the product you're designing the team or you're the machine that builds the machine which is a tricky design <laughs> challenge in itself I also came to learn and that's that's something you've actually been been talking about quite a bit recently like on our world tour that you know this idea, I suppose, that you're you're now designing the machine that runs the machine, but that also that what systems can come and bring to that, like not just systems thinking, but I think you're, you talk about now the, the full stack design system. Mm-hmm. What is that and, and what makes this approach unique? So despite the fact that we're scaling, Intercom is still relatively small, like we're a mid, mid-stage startup, right? We have got 12 designers. We had four designers for what it's worth when I joined three, three-ish years ago. We've got about 12 now. And yet we're building multiple products at the same time. Kind of a crazy undertaking at some level, right? But what it really means is you have lots of designers with still like a great deal of ownership over a large surface area of product. But as the team scales, like 12 people, that's a lot to try and keep up with everyone else's work. And in fact, if you tried to actually keep up with everyone else's work, you'd spend no time getting your own work done. You're just trying to understand what everyone else is doing so that you know enough to produce work that's consistent with it or rhymes with it in some way. So you need to solve that somehow. And the solution that we're focusing on for solving this problem is to come up with a system or a design system. And design system, not a new thing. We've had visual templates for branding and signage and things like that for a long time. But it's still a pretty nascent thing in terms of web design. We had things like Twitter Bootstrap is a well-known UI framework, but design systems as a thing for products internally to think about a, a really modular way of building their own products and for a team like a, a team like mine to think about how to build a system and then build their product out of that system, a bunch of modules or objects that they can reuse again and again. And thus you get things like consistency for free, but you also get maybe some more coherence in the user experience for free, right? As a user goes from part A designed by designer one to part B designed by designer two, it doesn't feel jarring because those designers haven't, you know, built their the product out of vastly different materials. That's essentially it. A lot of it has to do with ability to scale your output and still remain somewhat coherent without having a whole ton of overhead in, in terms of keeping up with what everyone else is doing. How hard is it, though, to retrofit something like that to an existing product or to a product that's actually evolving? It wasn't like we said, hey, we're going to stop developing Intercom for a while while the designers get the, get themselves together and apply the system to it. I mean, that must be really a, a nightmare because you find that people use the same language for it to mean different things. There's just inconsistencies all over the place. How do you start to actually develop that system? It's pretty tricky. Uh, <laughs> and the reality of it is it's one of those like building the airplanes while the airplane is flying thing as well. Like at the same time, you know, no one's like stop the company. We want to like 
get everything just right and get all our, 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 our ducks in a row. Instead, you have to do this while developing new features and, and so on. There's potentially multiple levels at which you could tackle this. You know, you could have a thing that we did that was effective fairly early was to be quite specific about our language, about the words that we use to refer to different parts of the product. Um, it's very easy to be kind of fuzzy about the words that you use and, and non-specific, what you call, you know, an intercom, a conversation, I might call a chat. And then or a message. Or a message. And and then we're having product conversations. We're literally sitting in our room or at our whiteboard and we're trying to figure out what new features we should do. If we're not using the same words, it's very easy for ambiguity to to creep in. So that's a pretty simple thing that you can do and 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 develop maybe a glossary and just make sure everyone understands using the same words. At the UI level, you can try and rationalize every place that, let's take your example again, a message appears throughout your whole UI. You could then take it a step further and try and also have those templates for all the different types of messages that you display be reflected in code. And so the same code snippets um, render them and so on. But the real core of the thing is to have the whole team having the same kind of conceptual model of what the product is. And if you can just get that in place, that that's a really good start. And then you can do a lot of the, it could take years, right, to build out all of the templates that you need and the code objects and, and snippets that you need and, and so on. But if you have a shared concept and a shared language, that's a really good start. So obviously you mentioned code snippets there, the fact that engineers are now able to sort of, you know, create things in, in UI and make sure they're consistent. But does that sort of start to blur the boundaries between designers and engineers? And you know, is that, a, is that a good thing? Is that something you want when you're trying to like capitalize on an opportunity and move quickly? In some sense, that's exactly what you want. You know, like a lot of this comes down to organizational design and who you think of as, as the team that creates your work. At Intercom, our designers are embedded in product teams. So a product team would typically consist of a PM, a designer, an eng manager, and maybe two or three engineers, and that's it. And so... We don't have like this group of a dozen designers sitting in a room together and pumping out mock-ups and sending them to a team on the other side of the office and hoping it gets implemented well. So a huge amount of product success comes from designers and engineers working together and coming up with a shared solution. So I'm not going to go as far as to say everyone is a designer, but everyone can certainly contribute to the design process and to the solution for sure. In fact, just to call back to the... Google example that I gave earlier, where great products can come out of this meeting of minds between, you know, some technical possibility and the new design opportunity that's afforded by it, right? So I think it's a real mistake if you don't invite engineers and PMs and researchers and analysts and content strategists and all these other functions that we do have into the design process. And I suppose just the the the, the design system makes sure, though, that everyone's playing within the rules are the rules by their nature are sort of baked into it even people don't even have to really think about the rules is that the idea that a good system like the full stack design system as you call it will actually just impose those rules naturally right as much as possible obviously as much as possible so traditionally just to like maybe expand on on the the full stack aspect of it to a certain extent I mentioned, you know, you have lots of these kind of pattern library type things like Twitter Bootstrap, which is like, hey, here's a bunch of reusable text elements and and inputs and drop downs and radio buttons and so on. And they're all styled pretty nicely. It's hard to make an offensive looking UI with them. The thing about those things is they're generic. 
So if you're if you're a company, if you're a startup or building a specific product, if you're like Intercom or if you're Airbnb or you are Spotify or whatever it is, it seems a little silly to me actually to go, well, let's take this bucket of generic widgets and try and make our UI out of it because it ignores the fact that your product is your product, right? Your product contains a bunch of concepts that should be encapsulated in that system. So this is not to say that Twitter Bootstrap or any of those things or material design is another good example of this are in any way poor. They're just by necessity generic because they want lots of developers to build lots of different types of products and apps using these patterns. Mm -hmm. At Intercom, we have very much more specific needs. We want to build Intercom, so we should have Intercom patterns. And like I said, I would imagine the same for for, um, Airbnb and, and Spotify and so on. So it makes sense, I think, a mistake that frankly I've witnessed is maybe some companies who are saying, let's do our pattern library or our design system. And for some reason, they generally stay at this generic level rather than baking some product concepts into the system itself. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with Intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So can you walk us through a specific example here at Intercom maybe where we've used systems thinking to crack a problem maybe that would have otherwise proved much more challenging if you didn't have a system in place? Yeah, a good example is probably when we launched our Educate product. That's our newest product that we launched last year. Educate, a very basic level, is the ability, rather than having a conversation with your customers to support them, which is what Intercom has done quite well for a long time, it allows them to help themselves. So the system, we have an operator bot that can suggest articles that will answer your question if your question is is a very simple one. So the question might come in, you know, how do I reset my password? And the operator bot will go, here's an article that tells you how to reset your password, right? That article object exists throughout the intercom system, right? We decided, hey, articles seems like a key part of this new product that we're building. So where can they be useful? And so it wasn't just a matter of saying like, let's design this little flow where the bot replies and puts in an article. 
we can also, once we've created that same article and its properties, like what it's made up of and, and how it behaves and, and so on, we can create a website that's like a help center that lists all those articles and, and displays them nicely. Or on the what we call the teammate side, which is where the business has like an inbox where they're talking to their customers, they can take articles and insert them into the conversation. Also, it doesn't have to be automatically recommended. And so you just shortcut a lot of uh, extra thinking once you start with, okay, what does this object need to be? And then you're like, how, how can we manipulate it in all sorts of different contexts in our help center? How can we present it there? In the messenger, how can the bot suggest it? In the teammate inbox, how can they send articles to their customers directly? A nice side benefit of that is you just have this one concept that gets reused in a few different contexts, so there's less for users to maybe figure out as well. So what's the role of opinion then in, in that kind of design system? Because that sounds like what maybe dis- differentiated from a, a design library, that, the, the, that it is an opinionated, that we're putting, as you said, it's a system that allows us design intercom, but that, that's an opinion of what intercom should be, right? Yeah, I think that the opinion, if, if you were to call it that, is at the level of deciding what your objects should be, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the opinion is like, hey, should we create a new article object or should we reuse our message object and send people a message with the answer that they were looking for? And we had lots of very healthy internal debate around things like that. But they're the foundational things that you get right. And then, you know, there's the whole visual layer that you that I haven't really addressed here. That is obviously extremely important. And we spend a lot of time on, on that as well. But that is a thing that can change and evolve over time. And so you do start to say, oh, this is starting to feel a little bit 2011, right? That's the thing that you do want to keep fresh on a rolling basis almost, right? But your core conceptual models, your underlying stuff, you want that to be relatively unchanging or like if you do want to change it, you want to have pretty good reason about changing it, you know? And that provides a sense of stability at the core of your product design. Should every startup develop their own in-house design system? I mean, is it is is there a stage where it's too early to be thinking about your product as a system that you're just, yeah, you're still just trying to get the thing out the door? It's hard It's hard to say, like, maybe a better way of thinking about this is what are the cases in which, what, what are the signs that you need a design system? I think it's very useful to think about your product as a system because it creates a sense of conceptual clarity, both for you and your, even if you're in a very early stage team. But I think it forces you, it's like how writing forces you to clarify your thoughts. You might think you've got a really good idea, a concept about something, but writing it down forces you to articulate it and you'll almost certainly come up with a crisper articulation as a result of writing it down than if you hadn't done that same with you know actually writing down and and trying to maybe draw a little map of what are your objects and how do they connect to each other right that seems useful at almost any scale to me putting a real effort into creating a formal design system and that's the system that everyone uses and so on seems like something that might be a bit more appropriate at slightly larger scales and that's like wow, we've got a lot of confusion creeping in between the designers and the engineers when they talk about, you know, concepts and the designer creates a design and the engineer has to, like, write a bunch of codes to to create that again and again. Or, oh, we've got quite a few designers here now and it's quite difficult for them all to stay in sync. I think we need to formalize the materials that they're actually working with a little bit. So I think those things are canaries in the coal mine to a certain extent. You're going to be doing very well if you manage to uh, detect those things, honestly, at an early stage. Uh, This is kind of back to what we were saying before about your processes. Like, you know, 
very few people go, I bet our processes are about to break. Let's put new <laughs> ones in place. Uh, usually it's a bit more reactive in reality than, than that. Sure. And, and you kind of touched on it there. Obviously, you've got designers and design managers. So like today, you're essentially a, a manager of design managers. I mean, what's the most challenging part of that transition and like on a personal level? And where can you have your biggest impact? The, the most challenging thing is, is uh, letting go of the things that you've learned that you're good at. Mm-hmm. And taking this somewhat unknown leap into the abyss of things that you might be shy at, yeah. but you're going to have to give it a go because that that is uh, the thing that that is needed next, right? Having you know whatever. The, I just want to know what that the last thing you actually designed in Intercom was, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, but you know it would be very easy for me to fall back on whatever experience and say like, oh, design is easy. Mm-hmm. Ish, I wouldn't ever say design is easy, but at least um, it, I feel comfortable doing it versus a lot of the challenges that you meet as a designer, like in more of a leadership role. Yeah. Like you said, like, I don't have a lot of experience in managing managers. And so that's a thing that I need to learn how to do and evolve and figure out if that's something that I'm good at and can grow into and so on. You know, I will say that one of the traits of being a designer in our industry of being a great designer rather in our industry is someone who has a growth mindset, someone who's interested in learning new things. Because when I started off and I was cutting my teeth as a designer, it was time to learn action script and flash and, or even, even earlier than that, right. It was time to learn like macromedia director and so on. And so obviously I wouldn't have been able to build a sustainable career if I just considered that that was it. And so I think for anyone, and it's the same today, right? There are an amazing set of interesting new tools, especially in the last couple of years coming out, maybe prompted by Sketch, but now we have things like Figma and Abstract and so on. And there's a framer. There's so much for designers to learn. In fact, it's frankly a bit of a challenge because there's so many great looking new tools out there. You need to be somewhat judicious with how you decide to spend your time, what you decide to invest in. So that that's certainly a challenge for designers. But but in general, I think having that willingness to be somewhat self-led in learning and desire, curiosity to learn new things is something that will stand to you well. Yeah. I mean, just, just talking about learning, you're, you're, you've always been a big proponent about face-to-face collaboration and critique. How, how do you maintain that as the team grows? Like when there's 12 designers and you're interacting with like multiple other people on, on the product team and the engineering team, how do you scale it? At some point you can't, right? Like me personally, I certainly can't and shouldn't <laughs> be involved in every design discussion that happens across the organization. I think face-to-face collaboration, face-to-face is like the highest bandwidth form of collaboration that we have still. And for designers, I think some form of face-to-face feedback and collaboration is great because, again, there's this thing, the uh, the rubber duck programmer. I don't know if you ever yeah, heard yeah. of this concept, which is like you put a rubber, if you're a programmer, you're stuck in a problem, you put a rubber duck on top of your monitor or whatever, and you like explain the problem to the rubber duck. And by the time you've gotten to the end of explaining it, you've realized the solution. We've all had this. It's the same as articulating your mm-hmm. thoughts by writing them down that we were saying before. Similarly, just by like explaining your design problem and where you're stuck to another designer, it's good to have real people, not just rubber ducks uh, <laughs> uh, and bouncing ideas back and forth. You can really build on each on each other's ideas. So more than just saying like face to face is great for getting feedback. I think face to face is great for working through your own ideas and, and being able to iterate on them quickly. 
having said all that, pure face-to-face, -face, everything doesn't scale. As we move into having designers in different offices in different cities and so on, we obviously can't do that. And so you have to rely on other things. Um, I guess back to the design system thing, partially helps people have the same model. We also have spent a lot of time on our design principles, which help us to make decisions. What is important when it comes to the trade-off between power and simplicity when we're designing interfaces, things like that. So helping everyone have that shared understanding. And then there's a bunch of tools you can use. We use things like Wake, for example, to share work in progress, and it allows us to comment on each other's work on an ongoing basis. So there is an element where some aspects of what you do it makes sense to become more asynchronous than than just face to face. Similar to the process stuff, it's you know I, I think it'd be it'd be foolish for us to dogmatically just stick to this face to face thing. Yeah. You, you've got to keep on moving and in in order to grow. Amos, that has been great. We could probably go for another half an hour at least. But uh, thanks for taking the time to come down and talk to us today. It's been uh, the realization of a lifelong ambition, John. Thanks. <laughs> You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com. <laughs>